Hello, Graham Norton here. Thank you to you for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose. Here's what's to come from this show. Comedian Simon Amstel joins me in the studio to give us dates of his new nationwide tour, Spirit Hole. Sunday Times best-selling author Freya North gives us an insight into her new novel, Little Wing. Game of Thrones legend John Bradley is back at the big screen with brand new sci-fi movie Moonfall. And Amesh Patel comes in to tell us all about his new series, Station Eleven. But first, let's catch up with Maria and solve some more of your Graham's Guide dilemmas. Graham, exciting news. Oh, yes. It's the 498th day of January. There's only two <laughs> more days to go. Oh, fabulous. Oh, lucky. It is the... I, I, I like the, the papers are just already going, the January's over. There's a big big section on red meat in oh, one of the papers. Is that it? <laughs> and, and you dump a bunch of spreads of wine you can buy now that dry January's over. <laughs> I don't think anyone did dry January. No, I don't either. No. They'd have been a fool because it's the terrible month, so why make life worse? Yeah. I celebrated the end of January by bringing in some cakes because I'm not getting the group emails about social functions and nights out and no, so on. No, sorry about that. They're probably there going are, to your spam folder. There aren't any. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody goes anywhere, do they? Uh. Um, anyway, I bought in some mini uh, Colin the Caterpillars. I would have bought Waitrose cakes, obviously, if I could, but I don't have a Waitrose in Hastings. Could somebody please sort that out for me? And when me? you say someone, you yeah. mean Waitrose. <laughs> yeah, I mean Waitrose. Please sort that out. I can guarantee I'll spend at least £30 a week. Do you know what they need? Do you know what they need? They need something like a mobile library where they just drive a small Waitrose van around and they open the side and go up and kind oh, of go... They'd be queues. They'd be queues. Oh! I, are you still doing the, you know, guess the price up until £20? Uh, some weeks we are, not this oh, weekend. Not this, because I really love it. It is Because the... I don't know how much anything is. I'm, I was thinking, that's got to be £20 now. And no. And no. I mean, it's one of those games that I could just... I could actually listen to that on a loop. Maybe we'll take it to telly. Maybe we'll <laughs> maybe we'll punch it up, punch it up, and we'll get it on telly. And in fact, you could present it. You you you, you can be Maria on the till. I don't get to present anything. These oh days. no no no! I know what you'll do. No, I'll be on the till, and yeah. you'll just be you'll be the woman who you know when something goes wrong. Yeah. And I have to you you light the light that no one can see for hours. Oh, that's right. You say. And then eventually, Maria, they, can you check the cost? And, of... then, and then they start going, Maria, 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 and yeah. no one hears. Can you get replacement eggs, please? This one's cracked, and then I have to rush off to the egg counter. Is that the sort of thing? That sort of thing, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. Get and you're much... against the clock. I don't get much screen time there. Um, I've been watching the Responder. Have you seen it? Oh, I saw episode one. Very good. It is very. Martin good. Freeman. Very good. This is on BBC One. It's incredible that that what, that scout's accent is amazing. It's extraordinary. He, he keeps reminding me of, um, what's that little actor called? Mark Graham? No, no, not Mark Graham. Uh, you um, know. Oh, you know, from Liverpool, Ken Dodd. Is it Ken Dodd? Uh. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving on. And also, I have to say that Adeleo Adedeo is very good too. She now, is so still and focused. I love her acting. No, she was lovely. She was on the show last week. Was and, she? Yeah. Missed her. But it's Adeleo Adedeo. Adeleo Adedio. Yeah. And I said Ao. Yeah, no, which I was saying endlessly until oh. she actually got here oh. and said, Graham, please stop saying my name wrong. So Adelaide. <laughs> which I then did. Okay. <laughs> you stopped saying it's it all like, together. I, I, Pedro. Now, so Pedro Almodovar. Everyone says Pedro Almodovar. And then just for. I say Almodovar. Well, you are correct. Yeah. Yeah. But the rest of the world is wrong. But And also, he doesn't mind. 
He was on your funny show last yeah, night. And he, he well mind. done for you, by the way, dealing with Penelope Cruz on Zoom and then him speaking Spanish, uh, not speaking English very well. I was thinking, oh, Graham is earning his money tonight. Well, the, the only thing that makes it is I'm a fan of Pedro. Almodovar's. Yeah, me too. Uh, so, you know, you want to put the work in because, you know, he's entertained me so much over But it's the like, years. you know, juggling with different mediums and then you've got other guests. You had James McAvoy and... Uh, oh, uh, Nicole Leckie. Nicole Leckie, yeah. who was wonderful. Yeah, uh, to, and, to and I had a tagine in the oven. Uh, so you, know, <laughs> you had a tagine in the oven. That is what I call multitasking. Uh, you know, so I, I was trying to keep an eye on that. Was it on uh, a slow cooker? Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. In... Did you invite all your guests round for dinner? Afterwards? No, no, that would be that would be uh, COVID madness. Yeah. <laughs> Back off. I've got a bit of a cold today. And, you know, we're so used to sort of, you know, everything being serious. And we forget that colds just still exist. And so you have to just keep putting things up your yeah, nose. Yeah, you, you stay over there. I'm clean. Yeah. I'm clean. I'm coming to tongue kiss you in a minute. <laughs> Virgin Radio. Are you hot in here? No, it's cold. I mean, I'm sitting in my cold. bikini and I'm boiling. <laughs> Do you want me to read a letter? I love you. Two. <laughs> <laughs> Good. The power of speech. Here we are. Quite a long one. Dear Graham and Maria, this summer we are off to Greece with my mother, two sisters and their families. My sisters both have children and while we don't have children, we do have a beautiful dog. We are in much need of a holiday and agreed to go for seven nights. My sister tried to talk us into staying for longer, but we don't want to leave our dog for more than a week. And I'm self-employed, like many others. My business was hit hard during the pandemic, so I'm working very hard to build it back up again. My husband works full-time, and while we're not on the breadline, we are quite surprised by how much the holiday is costing. We wouldn't normally go away during peak season, as we don't need to. That's... With children, you have to, don't you? When discussing the trip, we had originally agreed to split the cost per night for our room, as they're staying longer than us. However, she has simply split the total cost of the holidays four ways, with my mum paying slightly less. I appreciate my sister is organi has organised the villa, but I feel it's unfair that we're paying for nights we aren't staying and paying for my niece's and nephew's holiday. <laughs> dear, oh dear. I don't want to cause any arguments, but I can't help feeling resentful. And that is from Michelle in London. Michelle in London, you have two choices, feel resentful or suck it up. I mean, the thing is, you should have done it right away. When she said, this is the cost, you should have pinged back with, oh, no, 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 I think there must be some mistake because we're only staying for seven days and it is quite expensive anyway because we're going in peak, blah, blah, blah. Um, I mean, do it now, discuss it. Don't be angry, just discuss it. Try and be reasonable together. Uh, say you can't stay longer because of business and your dog, etc., and that you originally agreed to split the cost per night. Did you or have you made that up or imagined it? I mean, only you know, Michelle in London, how this will play out because you know the relationship you have with your sister. If it's going to go badly, it ain't worth it. Just pay it. It will go badly. Yeah, OK. <laughs> Is that your only... <laughs> well, no. Oh. It's just... Oh, no, she dropped oh, her headphones, of course. The traditional headphone drop. Well, I, I don't think I've ever <laughs> no. dropped them at this place. Yeah, I no. dropped them at the other place. Every endlessly. week. Every week you drop them. Uh, so, look, I think... Here's the thing, Michelle. Uh, you know, this is... A bit, it's not like someone's going to take the room after you're gone. So, you know, it's, that room's just going to be empty because you want to get back to your dog. 
essentially. And your business. Yeah, and her business, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, business, working really hard, yeah. Uh, I, I just think the, the villa has been hired for this two weeks. You were invited for the two weeks, so the room is yours. It's not like it's going to be turned into a kind of a pottery studio, and the, you know, when you're not there. or so It's just going to be <laughs> empty. It's just going to be empty. So, <clears throat> so you... I mean, sister I, could rent so it out I, so I totally understand why your sister's just you know divided it all in four and gone boom there you go because no one asked you to leave after seven days no. that's you wanted to go back to your dog I think which, is... which can I say oh. I understand yeah. you don't want to be away for longer than a week yeah. but equally no one's hitting with a stick and saying get out of this villa but, you know it's yours you bought it for two weeks you're choosing not to be in it for two weeks yeah I mean you can tell that Michelle was already cross with the going on holiday peak season yes. which you have to do because it's it's half-term holidays. They don't have children, so they're already cross about that. She's cross about having to pay part of the villa illa illa for the children as well, which seems a little mealy mouth. You are their auntie after all. You know, give them a break. Uh, you know, why should I have to pay for my niece and nephews as Maybe well? Maybe they could help in her business. So I would, <laughs> yes, I would just really and truly, it is going to cause a scene... But, you know, I don't know. Maybe you've got a better relationship with your sister than Graham and I are kind of anticipating. But it's one of those no, things I, uh, yeah. that cause rifts amongst families. Money and organisation uh, will never end well. Cough it up. Cough it up. And OK, two things. Well, three things. Cough it up, moan about it behind closed doors and resolve to never do this again. Yeah. And also, when you're there, Michelle... Don't sit in your hands at the end of meals and things thinking, well, we're not, we're paying so much for our room, so I'm not going to pay for this dinner. No. If you go, go open-hearted, yeah. open wallet. With good grace. Good grace. And then smile, just Airbnb laugh. your room for the second week. That's a, li- that's a so really that good idea. So then your sister and oh. your mum have to share with complete strangers? You should be on Dragon's Den, Maria. That <laughs> is a brilliant business idea. Yes, Airbnb your room for the second week. <laughs> I don't mean that, Michelle. I think, you know, you know what you've got to do and you've already moaned to me and Graham and we've given you short shrift. Yes, but equally, you know, feel free to moan and, you know, and absolutely be livid, but behind closed doors. But I think if you are livid for very long, you take it with you when you go. I think leave that fury on the tarmac when you get on the plane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kiss goodbye like the Pope. Uh, when you get, when you get off the plane, <laughs> or put it in a balloon, <laughs> yes, and let it go, and it will probably get to Spain or wherever before you do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I just think Michelle, you've ended up in an awkward situation, and not, and it's not really your fault. But equally, I can see why your sister's just rolling her eyes and dividing by four because yeah, yeah. you know you, yeah. your first mistake was to go on holiday with them when they're going peak time because that's what annoyed you. We don't need to go peak holiday because we've only got a dog. We've got to pay for the dog to go into the kennel. Which is probably more expensive than Big Tub as well. Yeah, probably. So it swings and roundabouts, Graham. My favourite responses today will be receiving a bottle of Waitrose number one, Cedarberg Chenon Blanc. Sounds delicious. Okay, what did you think? Uh, Neil in Dumfries. Say your dog has separation anxiety and cannot be left alone. Or you could just stay at home and watch Mamma Mia. That's just the same as going to Greece and doesn't drain your bank account. In fact, in many ways, it's better than going to Greece. (laughs) Because, you know, Meryl's there and they sing. Uh, you could say that, deal. Yes, you could. Uh, Catherine Norfolk. This should have been discussed before the booking was made. Well, that's useful, Kath. Thank you. You're right. Let's climb in the virgin time machine. 
Uh, why not talk to your mom and sisters and try and find family, friends to take the dog for the second week? Oh no, to take the second week. Just be careful they're not more popular uh, holiday buddies than you. I mean, that is the thing. If the room's going to be empty... Well, that's that's on Michelle, really. No one asked her to go home. Um, but equally, you know, you are all family. You could sit down and talk about this. But it just, I don't know what sums of money are involved. But I fear it may not be worth the emotional cost <laughs> of, of what ensues. Get a grip. Be gracious and grateful that this is the worst dilemma in your life. Cough up, enjoy the holiday and never do it again. See, Tony... You're on my wavelength. So far, Tony is so getting that Chanon Blanc. Paul uh, from Beckham. Michelle chose to only stay for seven days. Is she taking her measuring tape to see who got the biggest room for a further discount? Well, Paul, not much sympathy from Paul. Is he in London? I think the lady complaining about the villa. <laughs> uh, I, like, I like Michelle is now just a lady complaining about a villa. That lady, the one, the one over there, she's complaining about the villa. Uh, she'd be happy that she has her mom and sister to go on holiday with. Appreciate these times and make some good and priceless memories. Nicely put, Izzy. But I think uh, Tony is my favourite and Tony will be getting the bottle of a Waitrose number one, Sederberg Chanon Blanc. Congratulations. Graham's Guide. Would you like me to read this second problem? <gasps> I long for you to do so. <laughs> but you wouldn't kiss me. <laughs> no. So I'm not going to. OK, here we go. <clears throat> Dear Graham and Maria, my brother and his wife have a two-year-old son. He's the only child in the family and is naturally doted on by us all. Uh-oh. However, he is also a complete brat, but only when his mother is around. As soon as she leaves the room, he is perfectly normal, but when she's there, he is constantly crying and whinging. We went on a family holiday recently and we were all driven absolutely demented by the constant screaming. I feel your pain. We babysat him recently for a weekend and he was absolutely fine, didn't cry once. My parents have previously made some comments on their parenting which were not very well received. I mentioned it to my brother and he seems mostly embarrassed. Should we talk to my sister-in-law? <laughs> that is from... Emily in <laughs> Reading. No! <laughs> Emily in Reading. That's one, the nation cries. Yeah, no! no! <laughs> I mean, number one, he's two. He's probably going through the terrible twos. That's being generous, perhaps. Number two, he gets all the attention from the family. He's the only child in the larger family and plays his mum like a Stradivarius. You know, it... You have to just leave it to her. It's going to be a tough lesson for her to learn, but the terms rod and back spring to mind. You know, if you let this child get away with this, I mean, what you can say... I mean, no, what you can't say, actually, is, oh, well, he was a perfect angel when we had him for the weekend. You know, no... But, you know, they, but you know they are saying yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, you are saying that, but you cannot say that to the mum because it makes... It's absolutely like saying, you are terrible, he behaves badly around you. This is the truth, by the way. He behaves badly around you, but he was perfectly fine with us because we didn't take any of his nonsense, is the implication, which she does. You know, if you pander to a child's every whim, that's what they're going to do. Yes. Uh, speak, you, you and I, no children, we know exactly how it works. Well, you know, it does sound like one of those kind of doggy boot camp things, doesn't it, where, you know, the problem dog... Yes! <laughs> it's the problem dog. And, you put it in a room. Yeah, and you need, you need some dog whisperer to come in and solve the problem. Because you feel like this must be 
you know, I, I feel like, oh, ask some expert, because there must be a quick fix to this, that if this child actually is perfectly happy, you know, will play with blocks, will do whatever a two-year-old does and not scream the house down, when the mother isn't around, then you feel like there must be such a tiny little thing you could do to make that kid like that all the time. Well, it's just that... But I don't know what it is. He's known his mother forever. He knows the buttons to press. He's two years old. He's already super smart. I mean, super nanny, obviously, her thing is always to put them in time out when they behave badly or to take them back up to bed. And you do that, you know, 53,000 times a night, etc. And you put them in the naughty place. I'm not sure that that's good, but I think it will work itself out. Your sister in law will come to you know realize is it sister in law Emily yes and will come to realize that she's got to do something about this she will get fed up with it and yeah. you don't want it to go past to almost and also, you know, the behavior needs to be nipped in the bud but here's the thing oh yeah don't say anything Emily because hey you haven't got a kid and uh, if you do have a kid good luck <laughs> because I because, know, that's the thing. Like, Everybody knows how to do it until you have one. Uh, yeah. So uh, the idea of stepping in to try and explain to your sister-in-law yeah. how to look after a kid... When you that, don't have a child. Oh, I mean, even if you did have a child, your advice wouldn't be welcome. But to be smug lady over here with her house all nice because a child hasn't rampaged through it and you've slept all night and all those things, to then kind of, you know, step in and kind of go, well, when I'm with him, I find this yes. works. Oh, I... Oh, you would we just played be with livid. Lego for hours and he was as good as gold. Yes. Went straight to bed. He was very good with me. No, nobody likes <laughs> Smug McSmuggington, do they? <laughs> no, particularly childless Smug McSmuggington. Child-free, I think we yeah. say these days. And, and here's the thing, Emily. Yes, if you do have a, a kid, you will look back and you kind of think, I can't believe I criticised that woman because look at me now. Yeah. Uh, you know, covered do you in think it's spaghetti. The, do you think it's the being a child's friend syndrome? I know this is an old-fashioned view that people say, oh, you don't need to be their friend. They will have lots of friends. You need to be their guide. Yes. Rather than a friend. And I think you don't want to upset your kid in the same way that you and I don't want to upset our dogs. So we go, you know, further and beyond to make things nice for them. And also, it's probably things like... Probably that child is screaming with the mother because the mother doesn't give the kid everything he wants. So if he'd like his mummy to be holding him the whole time, maybe she doesn't hold him the whole time and he sits on the floor screaming. Whereas when he's with Emily and the others... If he wants something, they give it to him because they're making no. a fuss of him and the We joking. know that it, the reverse is true, Graham. Don't but then we? why is he screaming? What isn't he getting? Because he's not getting it quick enough or she's talking with somebody and not giving him attention quick enough. You know, he's used to having her 24-7 because he was a baby and, blah, 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 and now he doesn't. And so if that doesn't, that switch isn't turned on immediately, what does the bubba want? Then, you know, he's going to kick team, off. I've decided I'm team sister-in-law. Oh. I'm team sister-in-law. And actually, she's doing some marvellous parenting and that's why that child's crying so much. Because she's giving it some tough love. You are just playing devil's advocate. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, so I mean, we are child-free. So many people have been in this situation. If you've got actual parenting advice, how great would that be? Because that would save a if fortune. If you've got actual kids, it would be marvellous. Well, that already. You're already ahead of the game there. <laughs> you're ahead of in, us. In terms of giving advice, <laughs> we're certainly ahead of the game. Uh, Emily, <laughs> Emily in Reading, she needs some help. Well, she, she doesn't need help. Uh, the... Sister-in-law needs help, but she may not be listening. Yeah. So, if but I, I think we are, we're all in, in as one when we say, don't say anything. You can't, Emily. You cannot get involved. Uh, let's see what you thought. My favourite advice will be receiving a bottle of Waitrose number one, a Cedarburg Chenon Blanc. Uh, 
<laughs> Mother of four, Emily in Lymington. No. <laughs> no. You cannot try to give parenting advice to your sister-in-law. What you can do is offer to have the kids stay for a weekend every now and again to give her a much-needed break. That's a practical thing to do. And, yeah, let's see how quiet that child remains. <laughs> Uh, Kathy in Norfolk, do not embark on any kind of conversation on this subject ever with your sister-in-law. <laughs> Make it easy for her to talk to you if she feels overwhelmed, but otherwise leave well alone or you will end up having little contact with your nephew. Uh, Tessa's in Berkhamstead. The worst thing you could do in this situation is try to tell your sister-in-law how to parent their own child. I understand the child is a nightmare, but that is children, unfortunately. Dem is kids. That's kids, that is. Uh, Louise, mother of three in Brighton. I think maybe you could say something in the moment, but retrospectively, it's not a good idea to bring it up. As loving as I'm sure it's meant to be, it's not going to feel very helpful. Thank you very much. Really, that's all the same advice. So I'm going to give the wine, the Chenin Blanc, the waitress Chenin Blanc, to uh, Emily. She's got four four kids. I imagine she needs it more than the rest. So, uh, yeah, get it down, yeah, Emily. Enjoy. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Right, time to meet my first guest of the day. Comedian, writer, director, Simon Amstel brings us a new stand-up tour. It's called A Spirit Hole and this is kicking off uh, in Dublin. Is that right, Simon? Yes, Graham. Boom, bang, bang <laughs> at it. I want information, I want it now. OK, yes, it's, it begins again. Well, it's beginning again, actually. It started last year and finished. Oh, I see. But it was such a sensation. <laughs> I have to do more of it now. You know, what the people want, the people get. Yes. Uh, did you get... Were you COVID... Uh, struck by COVID or was it all... Did the no, tour actually was, happen and it, good? It happened and it was good. People were not even socially distant. They were just next to each other. They were... They probably got COVID. <laughs> So you were, I mean, you were so lucky then. Yeah. You got a little window of opportunity there. and yeah. When we got to the Palladium, which was our last show of that bit of the tour, I, in the sound check, it was so embarrassing, I just sort of started crying a bit. <laughs> that we'd like, we'd done it. It, it, it happened. And also, I'd never played the Palladium before and I went there as a child to see Joseph and his amazing, amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And so it was quite special to be at the Palladium. And then... This is a lot all in one go. But uh, the the tech guy said, do you, want to, um, <laughs> do you want to go and see Bruce Forsyth, who's under the stage? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean he's under the stage? I didn't know what I was going to see. But they said, oh, you, should, you should come and see. I didn't know what we were walking towards. But it turned out uh, <laughs> they just had his, his ashes were in a wall behind uh, like this plaque. And I couldn't stop laughing, which they found quite peculiar. Well, I thought we were gonna, like going to see like a, the sort of the grave of <laughs> <laughs> what, like what, sort of like catacomb. Yes, yeah. I thought I didn't know what we were going towards. Like, oh, ashes! Of course, people have ashes. Um, I do. Now I feel badly done by. No one has ever offered to show me Bruce under the stage at the Palladium. Well, I don't know. Well, maybe if you cry first. Oh yes. Then they feel. Oh, this is a guy who probably wants to see a dead body. <laughs> I'll cheer him up. Yeah. Look, you're not Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> so this tour, Spirit Hole, because I, I saw, I've seen your Netflix specials. Oh, uh, yes. So, uh, because in the Netflix special, you talk about going to South America and how you're, you had this 
spiritual awakening and this amazing experience have, which sounds like an, a once in a lifetime thing but you have done it more than once in a lifetime I gather yeah so in that uh, Netflix special it was the ayahuasca retreat that I went to about 11 years ago now okay. where I went in with depression and got to the root of that depression and like, came out feeling just so I guess reborn and I felt like a strong cat I felt like <laughs> <laughs> I felt like a cat <laughs> and um, and then uh, about two years ago, I returned to Peru, and I guess it was because I was approaching forty. I didn't know how to deal with that, and it and I had this ceremony that I talk about in the new show where I should explain what this is. This is like a healing plant medicine where you have these visions and you get to what is within you that's causing you all this anxiety or pain. And it turned out I was full of shame. I was full of all this shame. Still, was... yes. Still? Yeah, it was because I grew up gay in Essex. <laughs> That's what it was. And uh, I had this... In, I, ha- I, st- I took all my clothes off during this ceremony. And Did then... anyone ask you to do that? No. No? OK. In fact, we've been asked not to do... <laughs> <laughs> like, they'd been, they'd been like... They said, don't have any sex for two weeks before or after. And suddenly I was, like, in the middle of the ceremony. Um, and there's all this chanting going on. And I'm naked... And my, I can't explain all of this at this time no, of the morning. No, I would, I wouldn't try. But there's a well, you could come and see the show. But my, yes. my, my finger beyond my control went towards what I became to know as my spirit hole. That, that's probably all right, isn't it? Yes, I think that's all right. That's right. <laughs> there were no rude words there. Nothing bad happened. <laughs> Nothing bad happened. Um, was it the point where they were kind of going? Actually, Simon, we'd like you to retain some shame. <laughs> we'd, like, we'd, we'd like you to hold on to a little bit more shame. Thank well, you. Well, the, the shamans the next morning, and I was feeling so free. Uh, they all they we went to see them, and they were all laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> the next morning. That's not good. I know. I was like, oh, wow, this is like a real like test to see if I really have overcome all the shame. Do I mind that I'm being laughed at for my naked dancing body? And did you have to do it? Was, was this a kind of group session? Oh, yes. There's like there's like 20 other people there. See, I think, can you pay extra and just do it by yourself? <laughs> well, it wouldn't be the same. <laughs> it wouldn't be, be the same. You want, <laughs> for me, it was like, it, it was like the, the question was, what's more important to you? The embarrassment, the shame or the pleasure of this moment? And I leaned into the pleasure and here I am now. <laughs> yes, well done, you. <laughs> Thank you. And, I mean, in terms of, you know, you do these things, is a part of you, obviously you do, there was a plastic bag just flew by, it was very American Beauty. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, it was gorgeous. Um, in terms of doing these things, obviously they're very kind of profound. I mean, we're laughing about it, but it, it must be a very profound experience. Even in that moment when you're, oh, look at me, I'm losing my shame, I've taken all my clothes off, is a tiny little bit of you going, hmm, this'll be good uh, when I go home and write this down and say it in front of strangers. I mean, I don't... I, well, maybe there's a tiny bit. <laughs> <laughs> of course there is. But I'm, but I'm actually so immersed in the moment. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really not thinking about it in that moment. Oh, really? Because I'm, I'm terror. I can't live in the moment. Oh, oh, well, you should have some ayahuasca. Should I? Yeah, or magic mushrooms. I'll ask Martha if she's got a reservation. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet and sour ayahuasca. Yeah, I found it. I used to find that very difficult. In one of my first stand-up specials, I spoke about um, running up the Champs Elysees in Paris, and with this. <laughs> I was with this group of people. I was a bit younger, and we were all running, and everyone's having a great time, and everyone was in the moment. Uh, and I was there thinking, oh, this will make a good memory. I was, <laughs> yeah. It's like, I wasn't even 
Like, I wasn't there with them. I was, like, in the future, looking back at this. I mean, it's a real problem, but that is that is the human problem. Yes. It's because we're human that we have but, this problem. Oh, no, I think it's also a performer's problem. Oh, that's true as yes, well, I Yes, I think there's a bit of that, that we are a huge vortex of need. And, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> God. <laughs> there's more work to be done here. Yeah. Am I, have I left it a bit late for my ayahuasca experience? Are there people... No, no, it's never too late. Oh, are there, were there old people on this retreat? You're not old. Uh, hello. Come on. Uh, but uh, no, were there older people on this retreat? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's uh, it's. I mean, yeah. And the more, yeah, there'll be, there'll be a lot of stuff to to unpack. Yes, I may never come home. I might just be. I'll you know, two years, you'll still find me rocking and crying by a <laughs> by a campfire somewhere in Peru. <laughs> uh, Nigel is in extra. Hi, Nigel. Yeah. And he says, we saw Simon's new show and just want to say we came away feeling truly life affirmed. Such an excellent show. So much more than just stand up. Wow, that's good. Yeah. I'm going to clap myself as well. Wow. (laughs) I mean, we don't know what Nigel's life was like before. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, uh, yeah. Oh, now, this is so weird. We were just talking about this during the record and Matt Oxford is asking the same question. I loved the movie Benjamin. Uh, Is there any plans to do any more? Because, you know, because you're writing, you know, Grandma's House, Benjamin, you're good at this. Uh, You are really good at it. So do some more. What's coming? Yes, uh, I should hopefully start shooting a new film in September. All being well, uh, wow. there's a there's a brilliant actress who says she wants to do the film, and that probably means that we'll be able to get the money now. And then there's like this other TV thing that seems to all be going quite well as well. So yes, there's stuff ready to go. And do you have kind of do you work with producers or do you just sit by yourself with the script and kind of go and then you leave your house going anyone anyone want to do this? Yeah, usually the definitely the 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 first one or was it the second one? The one where I'm sort of more alone was uh, the that's, film. That's the second one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's really scary because you're just. Uh, you really have to just have faith in <laughs> in being interesting, you know, and yeah. then um, and then you then you yes you sort of hand it out, and then oh, receive you know rejection or somebody finally accepting your work, and then and luckily some brilliant production company liked this new film, and uh, and then the, and then suddenly all gets affirmed, like suddenly this brilliant actor comes on and says, I love it, I can't wait, you know, and so it's. Uh, it's really, it's really good. I, I really, it's terrifying, but I really like it. And are you going to be in this second film? No. No, I don't think so. I mean, maybe one of those sort of like Hitchcock little. Uh, oh right, yeah, one yeah. of those maybe. Yeah. I wouldn't. Well, I mean, at a bus stop. It's so well, you're so busy though when you're making a film. It's like I thought about that with when we made Benjamin, and I I kept thinking, oh, there'll be a moment where I'll sort of sit down and we'll just have me in the background. But there was, wasn't a moment where I, I sort of forgot. But but watching Benjamin, it is a bit like, you know, the way now Woody Allen isn't in his films, people play a version of Woody Allen. I mean, basically, I mean, that's you, that is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it's a little bit. Uh, well, the new film is about a woman, so that's a bit with, different. With glasses. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Who goes to Peru. <laughs> Yes, of course. You'd have to be short-sighted. But <laughs> apart from that, you know, different different genitalia. Oh, that's good. That's excellent. Yeah. So, yeah, no, you, you couldn't play that. No. no. Um, and so, I mean, when you do those things, what's what, basically, I guess, if you've got these things, because stand-up to you came 
after your fame, which is kind of the other way around. Most people start in stand-up and then become famous. You became famous and then started doing stand-up. Well, I started doing it more professionally. Like, I was doing it as a child, actually. Oh, really? Like I was 13. That and... sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't... I thought you meant for me, but you mean for the audience. For everyone. <laughs> for every, everyone involved. I feel like someone should have stepped in and stopped that. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, it's really funny. Um, anyway, so I did. What's the point? I did stand up when I was thirteen. Then actually, I retired at eighteen when I got my first job in TV. Oh, I, thought, well, I don't okay. need to do stand up anymore. I've, I'm now like talking to a puppet on kids TV. Yeah. So, uh, but then when I was twenty one, I started again because I felt like I, I wanted to feel funnier again. And so I've been doing it. But then my first tour wasn't till I was around I don't know twenty seven or something. Yeah, because it's it's interesting that thing of growing up on stage that you. That you, you, I mean, I know this is all, it's it's written and it's crafted, but at the same time, there's a kind of something genuine going on. You are kind of figuring yourself out in front of people. Yeah, that's what I like about it. I feel like I, uh, yes, I feel like I have all these anxieties in my head and then I get to say them out loud and then I realise that I'm, oh, I, uh, that was just like a thought. It's just a stupid thought in my head. It turns out I'm just an idiot. And then... <laughs> And then I'm sort of free. All that sort of skin has been uh, shed and I'm, I can, like, yeah, evolve into something a bit less idiotic. And do you think you'll get to a stage where you're so not idiotic that uh, stand-up will be dead to you? It's, I mean, it's a hope. <laughs> is, that your, is that your aspiration? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. If it's, like, at some point, if... Uh, like, you were talking about, the, you know, the need, the need for this attention... I mean, I think I've transferred most of that energy into just the joy of doing it. And so when I think about like just being here with you right now, most of me just thinks this is fun. But there's obviously still that bit of me that like needs the people listening to like me. And I need you to like me. But at some point, I feel like I could maybe not necessarily have to stop doing everything, but I could just enjoy it. <laughs> Yeah, I feel I most of me is enjoying this and having yeah. a nice time, and you know. But equally, I want you to like me, and I want people to like me. Yeah. Uh, but then there's a big chunk of me thinks, oh, I could be at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're inside, aren't you? I mean, you're you're not far from. Don't you live quite close to? I do live quite. Yeah, close. you're basically at home. <laughs> yeah, Graham. nearly. Okay. I'm in my front room. I've, I've gone upstairs. I'm, I'm in the attic doing my show. Yeah. Uh, listen, you are doing your show. Uh, are you? Is it, are you going lots of places? I think it's about sixteen more dates. Okay, fifth of May uh, in Dublin, and then wherever. Basically, if you go to simonamstel.com, you'll find uh, all the dates and all the places where you can see uh, Spirit Hall. It's been such a joy. I have enjoyed this. I've re I've really yeah. enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I, li I like you. Oh, yeah. I like you yeah, too. Yeah, that's great. Oh uh, God. Oh, that's fabulous. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Time to welcome my second guest of the day. Uh, a sometimes best-selling author, best known for Pillow Talk, Secrets and The Turning Point. It's Freya North. Hello, Freya North. Hello, Graham. Uh, people are so excited that you're back. I mean, people love your books. Did, what was that like, that, that knowing that all those readers were out there going, well, I, I look forward to my Freya North books and there hasn't been one. Did, did that add to the pressure of everything? 
Yes, it did. And in fact, I felt really guilty. Um, and thank goodness for social media. So I could just keep dipping in every now and then and, you know, waving at people and saying, sorry, it will come, it will come. But then the weird thing is, when the book does come out, I'm then completely crippled with anxiety. Will they like it? You know, so. <laughs> But while the record was on, you were saying, so this book, Little Wing, it, it happened in lockdown. Had you been, had there been lots of false starts before Little Wing suddenly took flight? <laughs> Little Wing took Good flight. One. Good you. one. Good one. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm here till half past 12. <laughs> I'd actually had crippling writer's block for five years. Um, and and I... Sorry, just to, sorry to interrupt, but just what is the, what is that, like when you say crippling writer's block, can you not... Do, is it nothing, nothing coming at all? Or are you at the laptop and there's a few paragraphs, but you stall? What, what, what's actually going on? Writer's block is a really interesting thing, and I didn't believe it existed. I thought it was just, you know, an excuse by lazy authors who wanted to go shopping, watch daytime TV, until it happened to me. And it becomes, I like to feel that all stories pre-exist, and then my job is really kind of a secretary taking dictation from the characters and being able to then act as a conduit between the story and the reader. However, when I have writer's block, what happened was I couldn't hear a damn word that the, that the characters were saying at all. They could have been talking gobbledygook in a whisper. So it was very difficult for me to access the story at all. And it made me feel really physically quite unwell. Um, and like I'd look at my keyboard, I mean, the listeners can't see me doing it, but, you know, I'm rubbing my fingertips because it was like if I put my fingertips on the keyboard, it was going to hurt. It was like a real physical wow. manifestation of, like, extreme anxiety. And did you talk to anyone? Did you get... Is there treatment for it? So, well, first, the first thing I did when I talked was I lied. So when everyone was saying, because I was so embarrassed, so humiliated by the fact that I couldn't write because it defines me. So like when my agent or my publisher or my friends and family were asking me how the new book was coming on, I'd just blithely say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's great. And in fact, I hadn't written a word. Um, and then I did go and talk to someone. I talked to my doctor and, uh, you know, got some beta blockers to try and calm me down. I gave up caffeine. Then I drank a lot of caffeine Then gave up caffeine again. You know, I tried everything I could to to vanquish it. And in the end, the the magic formula was to frog march myself to the library and sit there. Because if I was at home, I'd even wash the inside of the dishwasher. Whereas if I went to the library, <laughs> I had to sit there and haul it out word after word after word after word. But yet it sounds like this book, Little Wing, did... I mean, when it started, you couldn't stop. Yeah. I mean, which yeah. is incredible because it is such a kind of meaty, chunky, complex <laughs> plot and, and so many vivid characters. It's like it must have been cooking the whole time. I think so. And in fact, I'd been to the Isle of Harris in the Outer Hebrides three years prior to that, um, uh, researching a completely different story. And whilst I was there, these, you know, a little voice in my, set, in my head said, what if you sent a character here? What if that character's a 16-year-old girl in the late 1960s, she's pregnant, she's banished here? How would she fare? And what if... 35 years later, finally, people are looking for her. And that was enough of a springboard, but it took me three years of sort of regrowing my self-confidence as a writer. And it actually took lockdown 
to release that. You know, the need during lockdown that I had to escape, albeit in my mind's eye, to this extraordinary place where I'd been so happy, that was the release. And then, yeah, Little Wing flew out. Ha ha. Yeah, no, but it did. I mean, it, <laughs> in it, about it, five months. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting you, because it is a, a, a tale told in different timelines, and we and we add them all together, we join them all up. But I like the fact that, that memory in this book is sort of unreliable. Memory's been taken away from some of the characters. Yeah, that was a really interesting concept for me to explore, especially as some of the character, you know, one of the characters, her memory is unreliable because she has early onset dementia. Um, and, you know, another of the characters that has actually blocked out memories that were very painful to him. So it was, um, there are, there's a lot of, I really enjoyed exploring themes of emotional uh, fitness and mental welfare in this book. And uh, you mentioned Jimi Hendrix. What's his connection to Little Wing? So um, one of the characters in Little Wing is a 16-year-old girl called Florence. She lives in Colchester in the late 1960s. And she wants to be an artist when she grows up and she loves Jimi Hendrix and he inspires her to paint all these, like, his music inspires her to, to paint these wonderful sort of swirly, whooshy paintings. And then she gets pregnant and is banished to the Outer Hebrides. And his music is like a little anchor between her past and her present when she's out on the island. Um, and it's the nickname as well that she gives her baby. And, you know, you talk about cultures are there and the Outer Hebrides are and, and people really associate your writing with this sense of place and how you conjure up places. And is that, are there certain places that you find easier to write about? Have you ever kind of tried to set something somewhere and kind of actually, no, this is not, this, this is not sparking joy? Um, not really. The closest I came to was with my previous book, The Turning Point, where the character is Canadian, uh, unapologetically, resolutely Canadian, but I'd never been to Canada and research is really important to me. And I sort of argued with that character behind the scenes and I like, begged him to be Californian because <laughs> I had just come back from a Californian road trip, but no, he was definitely Canadian. And um, I went out to British Columbia, which was the most life-enhancing uh, trip that I made. I absolutely loved it. I love locations. Um, you know, uh, even Middlesbrough, which has been <laughs> the location for one of one of my stories. Now, you know, late 1980s, Manchester. I just feel that setting shouldn't just be a backdrop. It's got to be a character in it. And you can't get that just by going through guidebooks and looking on Google Maps. You've got to go to a place and sniff it out. And is there a bit of you who's a kind of a businesswoman who's thinking, well, this book needs to sell this many copies if it's going to pay for me to go to British Columbia? Or are you much freer than that? Are you just kind of like devil may care? Oh, my goodness. I don't have a business bone in my body. And <laughs> I really do feel at the service of my characters. I don't feel like a puppeteer at all so really the characters say i'm from canada go get yourself over there and so you know i have to say yes sir i'm off okay i'll go with my notebook <laughs> i mean that is impressive the kind of the dedication to that and when and does going there uh, does it change i mean obviously it it makes the the writing more vivid about the place but does it inform the character does it inform things that might have happened to that character 
Absolutely. So my previous book, I know my publisher's going to kill me because I should be talking about Little Wing, but my previous book, The Turning Point, when I arrived in Canada, I had literally no inkling about the importance of the Canadian First Nations people in, in Canadian life and culture. And the village that I'd chosen to go to in British Columbia called Pemberton, just outside there was a First Nations tribe, the Lilwat Nation. And um, I just thought, how can I now write a book and not have, you know, a major character who's a First Nations man? Um, and I felt very privileged because I was able to go and talk to the elders and find out a lot about their history, their culture, their language, their people, their beliefs. And in fact, when I finished that book, I had to send it back to the tribe and they kind of had a powwow about me. <laughs> but luckily I got there. Seal of approval, and that was extremely humbling and really, really moving for me. Were they open to the idea of this sort of English author just wandering in, kind of going, yeah? <laughs> I think, I mean, initially everyone was a bit guarded, um, but I just said, you know, it's fiction, it's character. I want to make sure that he sounds authentic. I want to be able to... Um, add colour to the book with elements of your, your history and your culture and your beliefs. So, actually, they were very open to that. Well, listen, I say congratulations on Little Wing and welcome back to the world of books. Your readers will be so excited to have you uh, back in the world. It's a terrific family saga, drama, secrets, and it's extraordinary that it kind of flowed out of you because it is so cleverly plotted and everything. So oh, congratulations. Thank you, Graham. Thank you very much. Uh, Freya North, the book is Little Wing. It's out in hardback now. Thank you so much for coming in to see us. A pleasure. There's more. John Bradley returns to our cinema screens with a new sci-fi film, Moonfall, and Himesh Patel tells us all about his brand new series, Station Eleven. But before that, let's find out what Martha's been up to this weekend. Hello, how are you? Hiya, I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Do you know, I'm good now. When I read what you were making earlier at half past nine, mm. I thought, I'm not sure I'm ready. Now I'm ready. <laughs> now I'm ready. for I'm that ready. sweet and sour. <laughs> it does look. I mean, that is, I mean, people would be so impressed if that arrived at a dinner party. Oh, thank you uh, very Tell much. us what you have made. So I've made today is recipe by Pink. It is pan-fried sea bass with sweet and sour cucumber and a peanut brittle topping. Peanut brittle? Mm. You had me at brittle. <laughs> um, and now, so pan-frying fish is always because you because you know they're not the sea bass isn't that thick. No. So can you? I mean, obviously you can burn the skin and stuff, but how? I mean, how do you avoid it going too dry? So you just want to keep a close eye on it, really, and just realise that it cooks so quickly. Um, these has it has two minutes skin side down, one minute flat side down. Oh wow! So and you, that's it. So you three better or four be minutes. ready. <laughs> yeah. So don't walk away from it. Stick by it. Yeah. Use those four minutes wisely. <laughs> but that is good. So if people are come over, you can get everything else ready, and da da da, and then when they're you know sitting down having a quick chat, you can go choo, 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 and then go look it's all ready. Oh, yeah. absolutely. I mean, this is it's Lunar New Year on Tuesday, and I feel like everyone is always thinking, do you know what? We'll just reach for the takeaway menu, get something in. But something like this, you could do exactly as you say. You could make some of the bits in advance. It's actually a really straightforward recipe, and then cook the fish when your guests arrive and. Save some money, do some home cooking. Oh, happy and, days! You know, and ever, and, but also, I'm looking at it now. Everyone will be so impressed when that shows up yeah. at the table. Flash your chef skills <laughs> to some friends and neighbours. Well, you say that, <laughs> <laughs> or or just have a picture of what it should have looked like. <laughs>
Also yeah. doable. Yeah. This, this is what I was trying to make. <laughs> right, I'm here with Martha, show chef Martha, and she's talking us through sweet and sour sea bass, which when I heard about it, I imagined something quite sloppy. Okay. And this isn't. I mean, the sea bass is intacto. Mm, it yeah, is. crispy. Got to yeah. have crispy skin. Okay, so uh, we, we know that that takes three minutes. So that's three minutes in the future. Uh, yes. What do we start with? So we're going to start with the sweet chilli sauce. And I call this a, a good level of homemade. <laughs> I think sometimes Asian-style cookery can be a bit intimidating because you think, I don't have rice wine vinegar and all these other ingredients in my cupboard. How am I going to make sweet and, sweet and sour sauce? But the ingredients for this sweet and sour sauce are sweet chilli sauce, some tomato ketchup, soy sauce and lime juice so you've got some ingredients there that have already got other things added but those will all come together and make a really authentic tasting sweet and sour sauce yeah and also if people say did you make that yourself you go yes i did absolutely you say from using scratch. <laughs> using bottles of other stuff <laughs> yeah i did just <laughs> concocting yeah. <laughs> well you know but it's still it's still cooking yeah agree it's been heated you put it all into a saucepan <laughs> together yeah you didn't microwave you mix it. it exactly you mix it all together and it becomes this lovely thick and glossy sauce whilst that's kind of thickening in a way you want to chop up your cucumber so it's great using something like cucumber because again it doesn't need to be cooked so you're keeping all those nutrients in there it's nice and fresh against the sea bass and the sweet sauce that goes into a bowl and then we add a little bit of that warm sweet and sour sauce and toss that through the cucumber so it's nice and coated and it brings it up the temperature a bit so it's not kind of shockingly cold yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't hurt your teeth. No, we're all good with that. And then you want to coat your sea bass in some corn flour that we season really generously with salt and pepper, and that's what gives it all of its lovely flavour. Oh, OK. That goes into a pan with a little bit of oil in it for a couple of minutes on each side until it's nice and crispy, and that corn flour almost acts like batter. That's what makes it so crispy on both sides, but you're not having to completely deep fry or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you just want to arrange it all on a plate. The peanut brittle is actually um, a pack of Walker's... Uh, honey and sea salt nuts which are very addictive in the sensations range <laughs> but you equally could make your own by buying some peanuts tossing yeah, them in we're sugar not doing and salt. that either and i mean please tell me you microwave that rice i did microwave that Excellent. rice oh martha's on a trolley dash today <laughs> no messing it's got to be achievable last week we had marmalade that was hard that this was very week, hard. Yeah, we're still, we're, we're still getting texts from people going, it still hasn't set, yeah. should I give up now? Yeah, so a week later yes. you really should. I'm going to go with you. So. Uh, listen, this is this is so achievable. That Those ingredients that people nip out now and they can have this for their dinner tonight. If you want the full mm. recipe of Martha's uh, Sweet Sour Sea Bass, go to our Instagram account at Virgin Radio UK and stab away there and you will eventually be led to a receipt for uh, that sea bass. Uh, you're back tomorrow morning, uh, sweetest savoury it's going to be something sweet and citrusy tomorrow Ooh, is it a lemon tart mm, we have to wait and see <laughs> yes it is uh, is it yes it is oh yay great I, guess I love lemon tart I love lemon tart are you just going to buy it or are you actually going to make it I promise you I will make it I will go out there now into the kitchen and I will start making it okay <laughs> the Graham Norton radio show with Waitrose you can taste when it's Waitrose Virgin Radio unfurl the napkins she's here <laughs> Martha Collison our show chef uh, now no trolley today just a plate which you nearly dropped but uh... <laughs> <laughs> Shh, tell no one <laughs> uh, what is on that plate so on this plate is some mini lemon meringue pies now they are mini in whose world i mean, I mean... <laughs> 
Well, that just looks like two <laughs> lemon meringue pies. I feel like miniature could often be a bit of a letdown. When so I was like, well, here's a mini chocolate brownie. You think, I just want the whole brownie. So this is mini in the sense that it's not a full family size meringue pie, but you wouldn't be disappointed. Yeah, it's if enough you to make it. you sick. <laughs> it's enough to leave you thinking, I don't want lemon meringue pie for a while. You would need some pretty big hands to make that look like a mini lemon meringue pie. <laughs> it's a giant sort of Harry Hill hand Let's coming go in. in individual. Individual meringue okay, pies okay. <laughs> for and a hungry now, person. So this is your recipe? <laughs> it is, yes. Okay, and apparently we're not just uh, bigging up mini lemon meringue pies uh, because this is in the Waitrose Weekend newspaper mm, this It week. is, yes. I've done a whole kind of five recipes on citrus. Oh. I feel like in January we need that little pep of citrus flavour. Yes, exactly that. So yeah. a little bit of zing. So I've done a few recipes based on lemons, grapefruits, oranges, lime. So we've got mini lemon meringue pies, some baked citrus fruits in honey, a cake covered in dried citrus fruits. So if you're interested in anything citrus, this is the place this is the place to go. <laughs> well, I'm very excited. I think you were going to do grapefruit, but it's one thing I can't eat. I did think that. I'm glad I remember that correctly. I... No, I'm amazed you remembered that. When did I, I can't remember. When did I ever tell you that? Well, you know, I can just sense. Did I tell you that day one when you came in? Is there anything you don't eat? And I went, grapefruit, that's the only thing. Possibly. Maybe. I just, it was in the back of my mind somewhere. I thought, I really don't want to serve you up warm grapefruit if that's going to no, upset you. No, I, I, don't, I don't think I'd eat it. I think, I, I think I'd have to say no, because I think it makes me vomit. So, this is a much better alternative. Mini lemon meringue pie. Mmm, delicious. Mini, how are you? Uh, <laughs> You've right. had about, about a third. <laughs> and I'm full. Uh, so, how do we uh, make these? So, we're going to start with the pastry. Okay. So, everything in these is made from scratch. So, these are a proper, like, you know, I've made all of this wow. for your guests' okay. situation. Um, so, we start with the pastry. Um, I've added a bit of lemon zest into the pastry because I think it's nice to have lemon in every aspect of the tart. Okay. So, you take your pastry ingredients, which is flour, sugar, um, a bit of lemon zest, and an egg yolk, and you want to save the white for your meringue topping. Of course. So, all the eggs in this recipe, they all, all of them get used in their entirety because there are so many recipes out there where they say six egg whites for your meringue topping and you just have to throw away the yolks which always makes me a bit sad so all of it gets used Excellent. so we make our pastry either in a food processor or by hand that goes into the fridge then rolled out and blind baked in these little tart tins which is where they kind of get their first bit of heat in the oven to crisp them up before you Is that where you, you put the them. stone on them? You put little pebbles on it them? It is, yeah. So oh, okay. you can use baking beans or you can use things like rice or lentils, anything that will just weigh it down stop it from bubbling up okay. um, whilst it's in the oven. Whilst they're baking, you want to make your lemon curd. So I've gone for just a regular lemon curd with a little bit of limoncello in there as well. Mm, just I, a little... Now you mention that, <laughs> I can taste... Yes, I can taste it, yeah. Delicious. Because um, And you can use any alcohol, really, if you want to. It's optional, but if you want to chuck in a bit of gin bit of limoncello something like that works really nicely and um, that goes into the warm tarts and then just left to set overnight or just for a couple of hours and then just before you're ready to serve them you want to whip up a, a meringue topping so it's not italian meringue or any of the ones with hot sugar syrup it's a basic french meringue so it's just egg whites add in your sugar bit of corn flour and then these go back into the oven so that they cook all the way through because we're not cooking the egg white it needs to go back in the oven to heat oh, okay. through and um, just yeah. to make sure it's safe to eat so it gets swirled on the top and then into the oven until nice and crisp and then you want to serve them at room temperature 
delicious. What's it, uh, why do people use the Bunsen burner thing, the blowtorchy thing? Is that just to brown them up a bit more when they get out? Or So if you've made an Italian meringue, which is a meringue where you use a hot sugar syrup to cook it basically as you're whipping it. <laughs> okay. It's not as hard as it sounds, but yeah. the it's already cooked, so you can just use the blowtorch to brown oh, the outside. I see. But with a meringue like this, the I mean, this is your traditional French cooked. meringue. This is your basic French meringue. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It is. <laughs> I'm just repeating. I'm just, like a parrot. I'm just like a parrot learning what you've said. That is the way to go. I mean, I've essentially done that over the years. <laughs> um, and in terms, I mean, the, the, to me, I think the lemon curd is probably the hardest bit of this, is it? Potentially. I mean, you just need to, um, it's just about stirring and not taking your eye off it. So it t- only takes about five to ten minutes, but you just got to keep mixing it so it doesn't catch on the bottom or scramble those eggs. You d- and don't scramble. No, no, please, no, no. <laughs> please don't. Uh, well, honestly, delicious. And it, it, it's, it looks so impressive. Uh, if you'd like the full recipe, you could get the Waitrose Weekend newspaper, and that uh, features lots of Martha's other citrus recipes. Or you could go to our um, Instagram account, at Virgin Radio UK. Is that right? Yes, at Virgin Radio UK. And uh, stab away there, and eventually you will find a receipt for the mini lemon pies. Uh, have a lovely week, Martha, and I'll you see too. you next weekend. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. John Bradley, what an amazing career. Uh, Game of Thrones and now in these two huge movies. Uh, how are you, John Bradley? I'm great, thank you, Graham. I bet you? you are. I'm doing all right. <laughs> yeah, I was saying earlier, the people in, who went to college with you must hate you so much. <laughs> they, they hated me anyway. <laughs> oh, that's all right. They then. hated me at college. They hate me for different reasons now. <laughs> uh, so, how did, so how many months were you out of college before Game of Thrones came a-calling? Uh, well, Game of Thrones was my first audition out of college. Which, it, it, oh, it's oh, so oh, way to make it worse. I, I know, I know, I know, I know. I, I'll never forgive myself for it. It was, um, yeah. I mean, I, I'd never dreamed in a million years that I'd ever get it. It was just the first audition that my agent put me up for. I was more concerned with getting it to show her that she'd made the right decision with me. Yeah. Just, 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 just to. I didn't even think about. I didn't, didn't even think about any any kind of job really. Just about doing a good job in that audition, getting it or not, just to, just to show that she'd not made a mistake. Yeah, <laughs> and it's one thing, you know. I, I would say you're in a big Hollywood movie called Moonfall, but it's not just a big Hollywood movie. It's one of those huge movies. It's a Roland Emmerich epic. It's a big kind of you know end of days, and you're at the very centre of it. Tell us something of, of Moonfall and who you play. Well, when the movie starts, uh, humanity is in great peril because, for a mysterious reason, the moon has been knocked out of its orbit and it's on a collision course with the Earth. It's going to smash into the Earth and, and wipe out humanity as we know it. And frankly, that could happen. Could happen. I mean, then, like, I mean you know what I mean? Like, stranger all, things have happened. All right? bets are off yeah, right now. Exactly. <laughs> so with a few weeks to go until impact, an unlikely trio of heroes, myself, uh, a, a moon-fixated conspiracy theorist called Casey Houseman, a NASA executive, played by Halle Berry, and a retired astronaut, played by Patrick Wilson. We go up into space to find out what's happening and try and save the Earth. And what we find up there is more shocking than any of us could ever possibly imagine. And now, I've seen that the, the amazing opening sequence um, yeah. where they're up in up in space, uh, Patrick Wilson's up there, and then I've, I've seen the, the trailer and stuff, and from that, it seems like it's a real, for Roland Emmerich, because he wrote this as well, didn't he? Yeah, certainly did, yeah. So, it, can he did the day after tomorrow, and... Uh, what was Independence it? Day. Day, yeah. 2012, those movies. And so, this is kind of the culmination of his stuff, because it, it 
because the moon's coming closer, there are these huge big tidal waves yeah. and extreme weathers and things. So when you look at the trailer, do you kind of go, oh, I had no idea it would look like that? Or did you did he kind of talk you through everything while you were doing it? It was it was left up to our own imaginations on the day. And that's and, and you know when you do when you do green screen stuff and VFX stuff, you just get used to looking at nothing and expecting, you know, <laughs> expecting you know such bells and whistles when it does finally come out. But <laughs> but you know, trying to imagine what the inside of the moon looks like is something that n- nobody's got any reference for. You know what I mean? He, he got to design he got to design the inside of the moon completely from scratch. And people, all my mates, when I when I talk about this kind of stuff, it's the one thing that they. They're so impressed by, like, how do you act against something that's not there? And I always think, well, funnily enough, you can do that really easily when you're a kid. And when you're five years old, you can imagine you're in space when you've only got your own couch to look at. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think it's not about what learning to do. It's about getting in touch with the childlike side of yourself that through self-consciousness or embarrassment or stuff like that, you just, you just shed as you get older. It's about trying to do it and just not being embarrassed once you do that you you're off and running yeah and on a set like this what's it like when you step onto that set you know john bradley you know just me and and suddenly you know there's halle berry and there's these huge sets and all of this stuff's going on um it, how intimidating is that it's, it, it it is intimidating and it's you know first of all when you get a job like this you feel very flattered that that you you've been considered for this, and someone like Roland has, has, has you know thought that you could do a good job, and then just you feel an enormous sense of pressure to, you know, you're working with an Oscar winner, not just any Oscar winner, an iconic Oscar <laughs> yeah, winner, yeah, yeah. and you know, you just want to make sure that you're that you're good enough that you're not going to let the side down and not going to be the reason why the movie isn't any good, and and you know, they always say for a movie to be good. Everything has to be good. For a movie to be bad, just one thing has to be bad. And if that one thing is you, then, uh, then, then yeah, that's not going to be a good feeling. But so, I know, do, you, do you give yourself a little pep talks? Do you, take, do you go back to your Winnebago and go, I am good enough, I am, I am John Bradley, I deserve to be here, I have a right to be here? Yeah, well, well, no, no, I don't, I don't. In explicit terms, no, I don't. But, but, sometimes, but sometimes you have to sort of remind yourself that, well, even in the times when you don't think you can do it, Roland thinks I can do it. Yeah. So I, I have to believe the sort of faith that he has in me to do it. And, you know, Hallie and Patrick, they've, they've done so much and, you know, they're such true professionals. They, they don't make you... They're only there to support you and we're only there to support each other. So it was a nice, it was a nice set. It was a, it was a, it was a COVID set. We shot it in, in deep lockdown in Montreal, so we didn't see anybody's faces for the whole thing and we didn't know you know we, there was no social aspect to it but despite all that we had a really nice time yeah a good time to be in spacesuits really yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was ideal yeah. worked out very yeah. well john Brady stars in moonfall uh, which is a huge epic it's in cinemas from the 4th of february and it's one of those movies you do need to see it in a cinema like you will be sorry if you don't see it in a cinema absolutely yeah it, you know cinemas are slowly but surely coming back now and you know there's so much about them it's not just the visuals and the sound it's watching a movie in a communal atmosphere where you watch it with other people and you get to feel that emotion and go on that ride with other people there's there's nothing like it and sometimes you worry for the future of cinema but but hopefully we can do our little bit to remind people of just what a special experience it is well i think certainly a movie like this you make you know you're thinking i don't want to watch that on a telly i want to i I want to see the moon hurtling towards me yeah on a big big screen and it's in imax as well it's 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 on the it's in the the biggest screens you can imagine and roland made it with that in mind and roland's a big advocate of 
cinema anyway. So it was made to be watched in cinemas, and I hope people do. You can't imagine that because I, I I don't know Roland Emmerich from a you know a hole in the wall, but uh, well, but you can't imagine him being that interested in actors. He seems so interested in everything else. Is is he an actors director, or does he just leave you to it? Uh, it's 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 a mixture of both, really. He. He knows very clearly that if you're going to destroy the world, you sort of have to have people that you care about in jeopardy, otherwise nobody's going to care about the world being destroyed. Yeah. So he, he, the characters are on the page, but nobody's going to tell Roland how to destroy the world because he, he, he does it better than anybody else. But in terms of the acting, that does feel like a bit more of a collaboration and there is more trust involved. But, you know... There's very few times in, in your life that you get to work with true experts in their field, and he absolutely is that for this type of movie. Yeah. So with the VFX, with the green screen, you place your absolute trust in him. But with your acting choices, it's a bit more of a conversation, and I, I, I really, actors who work with him really appreciate that little bit of freedom that you get. Yeah. It's like you've, you've planned this, because it is like kind of John Bradley, versatile, because you're in, you're in Moonfall, was that the 4th of February? And then later in February... Uh, a huge rom-com is coming out uh, with Owen Wilson and uh, Jennifer Lopez. Yeah. And you're in that. I'm in that as well. <laughs> Straight, I mean, two two very, very different films and it feels all of a sudden like I'm all over the place, but that, that's, that, that, that's, that's more luck than judgment, really, or you know, bad luck, because they were shot a year apart, the movies. One was, Marry Me was in New York in 2019 and, and Moonfall was in Montreal in 2020. And so... It's just because COVID come along and Marry Me got pushed back and back and they wanted to do it in cinemas and not go straight to streaming. So they're just out at the same time. But And also, you, you, also you, can, you can see the effect that a pandemic had on me. Because in, in Marry Me, I'm not saying I look great, but I'm, <laughs> I, I'm looking half, half decent for the first time in my career. And then post-pandemic or mid-pandemic Moonfall, back to the same old story once again. That I'm was afraid. for the part. So, it was for, it the, was part. for the part. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, who do you play in Marry Me? I play uh, a character called Colin. He's uh, he's JLo's manager. JLo plays a pop star, international pop star, Cat uh, Valdez. Not much research, <laughs> research needed for that one. And I play her 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 manager and her her confidant. And and yeah, it was it, it was it, not necessarily uh, the act, the first actor that sort of springs to mind when they were they were thinking about that part. But but uh, I, th- I think the producer saw me do an interview on. Ellen DeGeneres one night. She got in late from shooting one night and saw, saw this interview and just thought, oh, maybe he'll work for that. And when you, when you, when you think about that, you just realise just how, how enslaved you are to good luck yeah. a lot but, of the time. But now you're at this point in your career, are you, are you thinking, actually, I might as well move to America now. I might as well sort of like up sticks and base myself there. Because you're based in Manchester here now. Still in Manchester, yeah. But for how much longer? Will it just become annoying having to come back to Manchester every other time? Where's my house? Where's my stuff? I mean, you'd think that, but, but, <laughs> but, but I think that one thing that I've always, I've always kept to the forefront of my mind is it's a slightly pessimistic way of looking at it, but I'd say it's realistic. You know, this can, everything can just stop instantly. You can make one bad decision, one one bad movie, and just nobody wants to speak to you in Hollywood anymore. And if you've burnt all your bridges at home, you've got nowhere to go back to all of a sudden. So I'd like to, I'd like to base myself in Manchester and see my old pals and see my family a lot and just go off and have adventures and come back and tell them all about it. And I just think that, I just think, you know, I'm... I, I, 
people say, did Game of Thrones change my life? And it sort of did, but I didn't want it to change too much. I was happy as I was, and yeah. I'm still happy with that life. Yeah. Um, but in terms of your, you know, your career, I suppose one of the th- good things about the pandemic is now that you can do so many of these meetings on Zoom. You can sit in Manchester and kind of still talk to the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's... that. You know, p- people have... It doesn't take long for people to get back up and running. I don't think you, something comes along with the, like the pandemic. Never, you know, we, we've never experienced anything like that in our lifetimes, and it feels like the end of the world. And then slowly but surely, people find technological and innovative ways to to still keep going and still get the work done. And that's a triumph of the human spirit. I yeah. Think. And tell me this: Are you relaxing now? Are you just enjoying the beauty of Manchester, or are you? <laughs> it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long if I wasn't. Yeah, yeah that. finished. <laughs> so, are you are you off doing more jobs? Are you are you working at the moment? I am. I'm I'm I'm, I'm shooting a show at the moment uh, out at Shepperton for for Netflix. It's uh it's the new the the, the new project from Game of Thrones showrunners Benioff and Weiss. Okay. Yeah, they it, it, they signed a deal with Netflix, and this is part of their deal. It's a it's based on a series of uh, Chinese sci-fi novels, and we've been going for a couple of months now. And there are elements of this show that make Game of Thrones look like safe ground. I've never read scripts this ambitious, and it, f- it feels unfilmable on the page. But if there's anyone that's capable of realising it, it's those lads. Do we know what it's called yet? It's called the Three Body Problem. The Three Body Problem. Yeah, it's it, I I it's a, it's a it's a trilogy of books. I read them before Christmas, and yeah, they they're, they're hard work. And are you going to be doing this for many, many years now? Are you going to be doing this for kind of, you know... Uh, well, we, as far as this first season goes, to give you some kind of a, a element of the scale of it, we started in October and we'll go until August for this first season. So it's, it's a big job. That's big. It's a big job. Wow. And we'll see, we'll see what, it, what has in, you know, the future has in store for it. But at the moment, it feels like it's a, it's a goer to me. Well, listen, we look forward to that, John. And in the meantime, people can see lots of you. Uh, they can see you in Moonfall uh, out in cinemas, and you should see it in cinemas, on the 4th of February. And then uh, Marry Me will be out later in February. Keep an eye out for that. Uh, thank you so much for coming in to see us, John, and continued success to you. I appreciate uh, that. Yeah. Woohoo! Well nice done, you. you. Take care. All right, take care. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Right, time to meet my second guest, of the day. Uh, you'll know him from the big movie Yesterday and Tenet, which was a big hit last summer. Uh, but now he stars in Station Eleven. It's on HBO Max and stars play via Amazon Prime. I was I was reading that thinking, how the hell do I watch it? Amazon Prime, yep. that's what you need to know. Yeah. Uh, Himesh, welcome along. Hi. Uh, so this, uh, and we were just talking about this, so this show is, it, it's sort of unbelievable. People won't quite believe that this show was in the planning before what we've all just experienced. Yeah, yeah. We we started shooting it two years ago before the pandemic began. In and real it's ba- life. and based on a twenty fourteen out uh, a novel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's it follows the, a group of survivors uh, of a pandemic, um, but <laughs> it, it's a pandemic that's far worse than what we're living through. In, in that, ninety nine percent of the world's population disappears within a matter of weeks. Um, and it sort of tells the story of, of a, a group of survivors and their sort of interweaving lives over about 20 years. So, And, and what sounds like it might be quite depressing mm. because you're thinking, oh, we have enough pandemic. Yeah. What's good about it is it's, it's like, well, this is what you could have had. 
Yeah. <laughs> it, it could have been it could have been this bad. Uh, yeah. So it makes our pandemic quite cheery. Uh, yeah, in, in comparison, comparison yeah. to this. So so you sh- so you shot the pilot pre like really pre like in the end of 2019 before we were really talking about this. People knew a bit about covid in china mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. all we knew so when you finished the the pilot and then you got on with your life i mean it must have been so strange watching i mean how scared were you because you know i watched it the, i watched what was playing out in life yeah. thinking well, how bad is this going to get you knew how bad it could get <laughs> i knew how bad it might get yeah it was funny when we were out in chicago shooting the pilot there's a scene in, in the first episode where my character basically does panic buying he goes to a supermarket and fills up three massive trolleys full of stuff and my partner came to visit me on set that day and she was like looking at the stuff it was just like random assortment of groceries she was like you know if this happened just just say this happened this isn't what you'd buy and i was like okay whatever it's not going to happen and then two months later, we were back home and it was actually happening. And I actually, I, we did a panic buy before everyone else started panic buying because of that scene, basically. So we were weirdly prepared for it. But also, must have been weirdly terrified. It was, yeah. Yeah. Because the rest of us were like, la, 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 hello, yeah. clouds, hello, trees. You were like thinking, no, no, everyone, everyone yeah, this might is die. Serious. Yeah, yeah. This could, yeah. It was it was quite scary. Yeah. Um, but so. In terms of the the show, I've only seen episodes one and episode two, mm-hmm. um, and it, so it begins at just before the pandemic hits, yeah. and then so it goes into the twenty years, but it doesn't go beyond twenty years. No, it it sort of cuts to twenty years, and the, the character that we meet, the little girl in episode one, this character called Kirsten, we catch up with her twenty years later. She's played by Mackenzie Davis, and she's part of a, a, a troupe of actors who travel around the Great Lakes area, performing Shakespeare to people. And it's it's another element of the hope of the show is that these people have have held onto art as a form of survival basically, and and they they you know they perform for people, their local community, and and it gives people hope in in what could be a hopeless time. I mean, it is a lovely vision of how people might behave in a situation mm. like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just perform Shakespeare. Yeah. Having seen how people behave in a situation like this, I'm not sure a travelling troupe of players is the way they're going to go. But, well, but in this, it's it's gorgeous. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I don't know, so it, this is probably a big spoiler, mm. but for how many years does your character... A, a number of years, okay. yeah. But, but yeah, yeah. We, we, we catch You're in up it. with him, yeah. I mean, at the end of the first episode, he's uh, he's at least survived eighty days. So beyond that point, you know, there, there's 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 a lot more of him, and and people who might know the book, um, you know, he's not in the book that much, but oh, he's a, okay. he's in the series a lot more. Yeah, and this and this job coming along, I believe, kind of changed your life. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. Um, it was a very strange time for me uh, and and then it kind of happened and and then we had the pandemic and and then i had a baby and uh it completely just uh, altered my perception of everything really um and then again <laughs> when you watch the series there's a certain episode that involves babies and uh, it was very strange for me that i just had a baby and was then basically surrounded by people giving birth and uh, it was just another odd coincidence of my life intersecting with what was happening on the show um but yeah my 
this show has been in my life for two and a half years now. It's been two and a half years since I auditioned for the show, two years since we shot the first episode. And yeah, I've had a kid and my life has completely changed in that time. So it's great to finally be sharing it with people. Yeah. And um, we must mention uh, Don't Look Up, the yeah. big Netflix hit, which you're in. Mm. Uh, again, it's a bit... <laughs> it's a bit ripped from the headlines. Yeah. Yeah, and also, strangely, in both things, Station Eleven and Don't Look Up, my character is told the world's ending and has a panic attack. So it's a new niche that I'm carving out for myself. Um, did you, presumably in that film, you weren't with other people that much in Don't Look Up? No, I, I, I got to Boston where we were shooting. I had to quarantine for about eight days, and then I did two days of filming on it. And, and uh, yeah, I, but it was a very, it was quite amazing, really, how they'd managed to make it work with, with you know, the stringent sort of guidelines and, and rules and... Everyone was wearing masks and, yeah. And was it the same in Station Eleven or were you in a bubble? Um, I mean, there were bubbles, but you still have to be as safe as you can, especially, you know, we're talking a year ago, over a year ago, where things were, in a way, much more um, unknown. So, yeah, even if you were bubbled, you know, we had to not go out. We couldn't do anything, really. Um, and, and we had to just sort of keep each other safe. And also, I suppose, nowhere to go. <laughs> no, exactly. Everywhere else was shut as well, so um, it helped. <laughs> and, but what's amazing is that you're, you know, over this time, when lots of people's careers have sort of just stalled mm. and they've just been twiddling their thumbs waiting for things to happen again, I mean, you've been in the only big movie that came out <laughs> that year in Tenet. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, now this and Don't Look Up. So you've been busy. Yeah, it's it's. I, I feel very lucky. You know, things sort of timed out um, very well and in that, you know, Don't Look Up and uh, Station Eleven were happening before the pandemic and then they came back. And so, I mean, now we're here talking about them. And, yeah, that, that Tenet sort of pushed through and, and became that one movie of the summer 2020. Um, yeah, I feel very lucky to have been... And don't you remember, like, we all felt honour-bound to go and see it. Yeah. We all felt like, I don't want to, but I'm going to see it because yeah. the cinemas are open, I must go and see it. Yeah, and it was out for such a long time that people were telling me, like, three months after it came out that they'd just been to see it, so it had a life, yeah. And with Station Eleven, uh, obviously I haven't got to the end of it, so uh, is it open-ended? Could this come back, or is it a fixed thing? I mean, it is a limited series, so, it, you know, the idea is not that it would... But um, you never say never with these things because it is such a rich tapestry um, and and such a great concept. So you could tell a lot of stories really with it. And and I suppose what's interesting, what's the what's that terribly depressing film? Oh, The Road. The Road, yeah. Yeah. So because <laughs> you imagine in this kind of you know dystopian future, mm. end of the world survivors thing, it's going to be just awful. Yeah. And and actually, you, th this is relatively optimistic yeah it is it's full of hope it, it's about how you find hope when when everything else is gone and and it's art and it's connection it's community and and it celebrates that you know it, and not to say that it shies it doesn't shy away from the realities of things and of course there are moments of of pain but um really ultimately at its heart it's it's a story of hope and this book, because it's a young adult book, and I'm clueless, is it one of those books that, you know, is there a big audience out there who love this book? Or did somebody just find it and kind of go, oh, actually, this would be a great no, TV no, series? No, it, no, it did really. It, I think it won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, um, and, and it, it was shortlisted for loads of other awards. And, um, and oddly, a lot of people found it during, uh, you know, 2020 as we were going through <laughs> lockdown. 
had a friend of mine who was like, have you seen, have you read this book, Station Eleven? I was like, I'm in it, uh, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I read, um, was it uh, Pull of the Stars, right. which was, a, a, again, written just before the pandemic, mm-hmm. but it's all about the the, the flu epidemic of uh, 1918. Right. And you're just thinking, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great, <laughs> loving it. And uh, what about you? Are you in back in Britain for a while now or are you off in your travels again? No, currently unemployed and uh, waiting for the for the right thing to come along. So, but I'm enjoying a bit of time <laughs> downtime. Yeah, <laughs> that, I feel that statement would be more depressing on a less sunny day. Yeah, like, today is a day to be unemployed. Yeah, today. it is a good day to be unemployed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and of course you're busy being a dad. You're, yeah, so exactly. you're, you're never unemployed. No, you're yeah, just full on, time. You're yeah. just on paid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, good luck with Station Eleven. It's out today. Today, today yeah. on Stars Play via Amazon Prime. So Amazon Prime is the key thing, and then search for Station Eleven in there. Imesh Patel, thank you so much for coming in to thank see you. us. Thank you. All right, good luck with it all. Take care. Well, that's another one done. Thank you so much for joining me on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. And hey, make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you can hear a new episode of the Best of Bits from the show from Monday morning. Speak to you soon. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio.